Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now thetakeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm Joshua Ray, programmer and critic, and today I am joined by Andrew Wyatt, my editor and critic over at The Lens. Hey, Andrew. Hello. I can find all of our words at The Lens on cinemastlouis.org. Every episode, we take turns picking a film to focus on in our current miniseries. On this episode, we've got Jason Bollinger from the Cinema Spin podcast, who has selected Emily the Criminal starring Aubrey Plaza as his gem of 2022. In the last half of the episode, Andrew and I are gonna break down our favorite films of the year. We're gonna top top 10 of 2022. So this episode, this episode, this episode, I spend uh, one oh. week in Europe, and I cannot speak English anymore. You know, <laughs> you're like you're like Madonna. You come back with that, <laughs> but I come back with French accent. Uh, you know, they. It was funny. My French boyfriend. That's why I went over there to to you know one see France, two uh, meet right. his parents and spend Christmas there. Um, but everyone kept coming up to me, and then I asked his friend, and he said, um, "Your brand of hipster." is very French. Is that a, what, what, what does that mean? That coming from a French person sounds like a compliment to me, I, but I don't know. But everything they say sounds like both a compliment and a dig. Yeah. Yes. And that's um, why I didn't want to come back. It was just like perfect right. for me. But I had yeah. to come back, one, record the podcast, two, <laughs> I'm not a citizen. <laughs> Jason. You record the podcast from anywhere, right? Yeah, and I have, and it was terrible. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the voice you're hearing that is not Andrew or Kayla is Jason Bollinger of the Cinema Spin podcast. That's Hi, right. Jason. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm good. I am. Okay, I am good. pretty good. I am fighting my Christmas cold. And then there's oh. Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Andrew. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Um. I've been on Cinema Spin before, but can you tell, uh, like, how would you, what's your elevator pitch for it? Okay, well, me and my friend, my uh, and co-host Matt, uh, every week we uh, uh, we pick uh, a new movie to watch, and we pick an old movie, an older movie, uh, randomly from the past. Uh, we have uh, the our our great randomizer uh, picks just some movie. It could be anything, uh, or. Uh, uh, it could be some, you know, an action movie. It could be a, a, a musical. It could be whatever. But we, uh, uh, we, we every week we uh, we cover a new movie and old movie and an old movie randomly chosen. So um, this week, for instance, we're doing the new movie Megan. Um, you know, the internet sensation. Um, and uh, and uh, also we're and we're pairing that with the, the movie r- randomly chosen is, was Flashdance for Megan. <laughs> So um, I love that this is not the usual like thematic pairing. It's literally our no, no. <laughs> Although this week dancing, I guess, is a theme. 
Well, th but that's the thing. Does it does it kind of usually shake out that you no, find some thread of connection? Well, the human mind, of course, looks for connections, even right. when it sees connections, even when they aren't there. I have, it's long been a discussion about whether or not the randomizer is trying to tell us something, <laughs> because there seems to be patterns in the the, the randomly selected movies that the uh, randomizer selects. Um, so uh, it seems to have a fixation on, on Carol O'Connor for some reason. Um, <laughs> so uh, It's like uh, me uh, when I was eight years old and all I had was WGN, because just in the heat of the night. <laughs> Over and over, yeah, you know, right? Over. So, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we and we have uh, we have uh, a lot of fun with it every week. Uh, so that's uh, Cinema Spin podcast. Uh, you can find that at the usual places. So, so we and we just it. did our we just did our one hundredth episode. By the way. Oh, that's right. Congrats. And you guys and did Babylon, right? Uh, yes, we did Babylon. Mm. Yes, uh, and we uh, then we went over our picks for the. Uh, top five best and worst movies that we've watched over the course of the uh, uh, of, of the podcast. So very interesting. I'm gonna have to. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm gonna have to dig a little bit because at the end of this episode or the back half of this episode, Andrew and I are going to count down our personal top tens. Okay, so we'll have to compare lists. Did okay. Babylon make anyone's list? Uh, no, Babylon was not uh, enjoyed uh, by either me or my co-host. Same. In the episode I was on, what did we, we did everything everywhere all at once, which we, I'm gonna guess, are going to talk about on this episode. And uh -huh. Urban Cowboy, a film Urban we will Cowboy. not talk yes, about see? on this episode. <laughs> Unless we find a connection with Emily the Criminal. <laughs> entirely possible entirely possible all right so all right this mini series we are doing the gems of 2022 we're talking about overlooked underseen films from last year it's already last year it's already last year so uh, so far we have covered katie carter came on and we did strawberry mansion drew and billy from do you like apples and we covered after yang and now jason you are bringing yes. us in Emily, the criminal. Hi, I paid 400 and it was never applied to my balance. Sorry, how much uh, interest is being added a month? How are you? I need a real job, just to like pay my loans. Emily, yo, let me uh, hook you up. So why, why Emily? Uh, well, there are uh, two ways I can answer that question. One is, well, why do I love this movie so much? And the second is, uh, why is this movie overlooked? Um, the to answer the first question, I love this movie so much because I don't know if you've caught up, caught up with it yet, but it is just a solid piece of, of filmmaking. Um, it's, a, a, it's wonderfully indie in, in the old sort of 90s kind of do-it-yourself, get some good actors together and make a... Uh, a gritty kind of sleazy little crime movie right um just and just get it out there for cheap and just do everything perfect right do make a genre movie and uh that is uh, uh, on the one hand formulaic but formulaic in the best sense where it, it hits the beats and, and uh, makes and, and uh and uh makes it because it's all very satisfying um so the movie uh the Setup for the movie is that uh, Aubrey Plaza plays uh, the the titular M Emily, um, who uh, 
is saddles uh, with all uh, with us on this crushing student loan debt for a degree uh, that she didn't finish. Mm, word. She she works at a uh, at, at uh, a dead end job. She doesn't tell even tell people what she does for a living. It's mm-hmm, a caring mm-hmm. company. She yeah. gets a line on uh, on what can only be described as a <clears throat> career opportunity. Uh, she goes to uh, to this little pitch meeting in the back of this uh, seedy little store, and uh, somebody says to her, um, uh, "In the next hour, you will make two hundred dollars cash, but you will have to do something illegal. You will ha- you won't have to hurt anyone, but you will, and you won't be in danger." But you will be breaking the law, and what she has done is she has uh, found her way into uh, not to ruin anything, but into a pretty uh, low-level but r- lucrative property crime scam. And uh, now uh, this can be lucrative depending on how ambitious you're going to be. And one of the central questions of the movie, the fascinating question of the movie, is how ambitious is Emily? Um, you would think this woman working a dead end job at a uh, at, at, at a catering company isn't ambitious, but uh, first time director here, uh, John Ford. John, yeah, John Ford, right? Uh, and uh, Aubrey Plaza do really well. Is uh, they introduce us to this character? We think we know this character well, um, but she keeps surprising us because she keeps surprising herself. And um, uh, the the ways in which information about her is doled out very, very judiciously. And the ways in which Ford plays with our expectations about who she is and where she's going and what she's really like under there um, is uh, is really just a clinic in screenwriting, I think, right? Um, and uh, this is exhibit A. When people complain they don't make maybe movies like they used to, uh, you know, back in the, uh, the, the Tarantino days, you know, I say, Emily the Criminal happens. Mm-hmm. And now the question is, to answer the second reason why Emily the Criminal is, why is this movie overlooked? And this is what I want to put to you guys. You guys know a little something about the marketing and distribution of movies, right? So you tell me, um, this movie was a big deal coming out of Sundance last year. I saw the very awesome trailer for this movie at least five times over the summer. And then, what? Then for one week in October, um, this played uh, once a day after 9 p.m. in Marcus uh, Werenberg Theaters, right? And then disappeared from the face of the earth until it showed up on Netflix uh, uh, at the beginning of this month, right? So, but that's the interesting thing that's happened is yeah. that now it feels like people are really watching Emily the Criminal. Is it not currently in the top 10 of Netflix's films? That's what's wild about this is that there are culture has shifted so much and the way that Mm -hmm. people consume uh, media has shifted so much that this is now the type of film that if it's on a list of things on your TV, you're going Mm -hmm. to click it and you're going to want to watch it. One, you're interested in Aubrey Plaza. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, look at the exact same thing happened with the menu last week where it it kind of didn't light any fires it did good it did okay it did okay but then it hit hbo max and suddenly everybody seemed to be talking about it yeah right and so you know it's hard to say when you picked this because we were talking about you coming on Mm -hmm. a month or two ago yes absolutely now hey Great timing, Jason. Because yeah. a, a lot of people are going to be right. watching. Well, this now and... everybody can see it. I, I had right. to wait for a couple of months to, be, to even <laughs> right. tell anybody. It was a very frustrating experience. I can't. I can't. Uh, people are often asking me in this situation. Well, what movie should I be watching? Right. Yeah. I'm like, you need to see Emily the Criminal, but where is it? 
The yeah, menu yeah. at least, you know, uh, followed the, the sort of HBO Max model of like, okay, real quick release uh, uh, in theaters and then immediately kind of uh, dropped streaming. Uh, and the, the Emily the Criminal seemed to be a lot more haphazard than that. It's like, it's like they were embarrassed. It was, it's like they were embarrassed to release it theatrically. And well, it's have a small a distributor, right? It's IFC. Yeah. They've never really been able to distribute wide. Even when they got um, substantial awards traction with a film like Boyhood, which was released by IFC, mm -hmm. for them to be able to distribute it on a wide level was still very difficult. And for them to be able to market things like that, it's been a very long time since IFC had any sort of, had that kind of machine behind it. Yeah. So when you have something like Netflix, which is a dearth of good material, I'm sorry. I like yeah, I no. can't I cannot wait for Netflix to turn on their password sharing uh, prohibition because I will turn it off. I'll turn it <laughs> off and someone else gets to pay for it and I'll never look at it again. I don't need to watch any more too hot to handle. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. I, you yeah. <laughs> no, I, you might. I might. I might. No, I mean, I I see what you're saying though, because I don't know. Compared to where things were, say, ten years ago, I think that there are less movies like this are showing on less screens in a medium-sized city like like ours. I think that people's willingness to venture out, like, it's almost becomes like a negative feedback loop. The theaters uh -huh. don't book it, so like, unless I was willing to go to Roddy's or like one theater in St. Louis to drive mm -hmm. to this one theater at one time during a narrow like seven day window. What if mm -hmm. I had stuff going on while like those, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a film critic. I see tons of films, but even yeah. I couldn't get, go to see this. Like I didn't see this in the theater just because right. it it was go it was there and it was gone. I didn't, and by the time I- once a day, I can't, at, at nine o'clock, right. I can't emphasize that enough. It was like behind the green door, right? Yeah, so I think, <laughs> so I think- I feel like I should be seeing this movie in a trench coat, right? <laughs> right, it's something, feels something dirty. But th there's a negative feedback loop right there, but, but audiences won't turn out for a movie that's hard to see. Like availability, we talked about right. this with Memorial last year, Josh. With, yeah. with like making mm. a movie hard to see doesn't yeah. benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit yeah. the distributor because it no one gets to see audience. it. Yeah, and they trust their friends who have seen it. They trust people they talk to who have seen it. And they also there's also this. I don't think so much among like serious cinephiles, but I think among pop a wider audience, there's this idea that if it's only playing on one screen once a day, it can't possibly be good, right? Right. Exactly. And and here's here's the difference because you bring up Memoria. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, that was sort of this legendary movie last year that nobody could uh, figure out where or when it was ever going to play. Right. But also you can see with distributors, they, they're it's not exactly clear who besides us is, are going to go see Memoria. Right. Where on the other hand, a movie like Emily the Criminal has a lot of commercial potential. Right. It had it has a major star. It has, or you know, for at least a, a cult, uh, you know, has, yeah, uh, on its cult scale. Cult. That's why right, it's yeah. successful on Netflix right now. Is well, right. It had a, it had a, again, it had a fantastic preview, right? Um, you can this movie, you know, it was shot for two million dollars. It ended up barely breaking, even clearing on that. That trailer alone ought to uh, make you would could make you ten million dollars just for just from curiosity about, you know, oh well, that that looks like a really good movie, and oh, that's playing now. Right. I mean, people saw the like I said, people saw the trailer all summer. Right. And then, then you're wondering what what happened to this movie. If you would just if they just showed it a few a uh, few more times a day and advertised it a little bit. I don't know. 
Um, it's well, very... but let's but let's accentuate the positive. Let's be happy that now a bajillion people can see it because it's on yeah. Netflix. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, in okay. their, it's in their top 10. Did you say that? It's like yeah. popular now or so. Yeah, yeah. well, good, good, good. Um, Someone, uh, two different people on either side of me on the plane, they were watching it. And I yes. was like, okay, good. really? I wanted to turn to them and say, yeah, I'm supposed to watch that for my podcast. And I'm like, <laughs> all right. Didn't get to it, did you, Joshua? I didn't want to watch it on a plane. I didn't feel <laughs> I like I would uh, yeah. give it enough energy on the plane. Yeah. Do you know, know what's a, a good plane movie? Babylon. <laughs> because if you're trapped and have nowhere to go anyway so yes i i i think we can all agree that's this is not the ideal situation and this film deserves more than that and it i deserves more I, than that it could have been so much more andrew do you agree that it deserves more than that or is it a is it a streamer um, I don't know. I, I, th- these kinds of questions are difficult for me to answer. And I, I'm sort of like, does it deserve? Does anything deserve anything? I, Every I think film it's- <laughs> deserves a theatrical screening. Let's yeah. say that. We deserve okay. to see it as big as possible. Yeah. I think that um, I'm glad people discover it. You know, like I, I can't go. I am no, I'm a nobody who has no power to control how movies are distributed and seen. I just try to tell people what I like. And I did like this. I'm going to recommend it to folks. So, so it's a good pick. Um, I appreciate it. But yeah, like I mean, I literally saw it on Netflix on Friday night. Like that, that, that's how I saw it because because I blinked and it vanished from theaters. Like I had it yes. in my mind. I think a lot of people I had in my mind. Oh, this looks interesting. I want to check it out. Oh crap! If if I have, I mean, like I've got a kid, I've got a job, like I've got other responsibilities. So if I can't get out to the theater during this very narrow window to this one place, I can't see it. Ugh. So, um, but it is what it is. Like I. We can sit here. I think that there is a sort of gloom and doom aspect to, to this. It's a very film Twitter conversation, right? That we, we talk about the death of cinema and the rise of streaming and how everything's the mm-hmm. markets are changing and the business is changing. Um, but I do think that like it kind of creates this doom and gloom feedback loop among people who are serious cinephiles. And I, I, I and I'm a, I'm, I do it too, and I try to resist it because I don't think it really, it's not helpful. Um, to to complain about how movies are being distributed, all we can do is like try to emphasize good cinema when we find it. This is a good series for us at the end of the year, beginning slash beginning of the year, because that's exactly what we're doing here. We're kind of trying to elevate things that people may not have seen in theaters. Yeah. Not only is this movie that I find this movie incredibly uh, uh, entertaining and very artistic, the subject matter couldn't be more timely. You know, as as we as a nation are are struggling with a generation and now maybe two generations who are basically indentured servants uh, because they took out uh, student loans to cover a you know a media communications uh, uh, degree or a philosophy degree or something <laughs> like that. You know, that is not uh, you know that that's not exactly paying uh, uh, you know paying the bills, right? It is um, it is because, two generations now too because what, yeah it is two generations. I mean, Aubrey Presley is almost she's thirty eight. She's almost forty. So this mm-hmm. is really a movie about like a mid to late millennial, yeah. Like who who is I mean, and part of we can get into that, but like part of the subtext here is her embarrassment about that her peers have moved some a lot some of her peers like her best right. friend for example have moved past her, and right. she's not she doesn't betray like an intense shame about that, but there's a self consciousness about how she is has been drugged down by this mountain of debt and things little things in her life not going necessarily the way 
she thought they would. Um, right. And and we, I I know people like that. I know one person in particular, particular like that, um, uh, who is, and you know, this isn't like other debt. This doesn't, this, you can't just, uh, you know, erase this with bankruptcy or something like that. They will garnish your wages, right? There's no way, this is old school, um, uh, you know, you must pay the rent shit uh, from, yeah, you uh, could... from the 16th century, right? So clearly the only option is to go into hiding in Mexico as a career criminal. Well, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> well, but this is, I should, should say that this is a spoiler podcast and we do talk about oh, okay, okay. all these movies. Everything's yeah. on the table. Yeah. Well, okay. So for me, the thing that's, there's a few things that are really working here and it's the kind of film that I miss. And, and that's what you're saying, mm. Jason, too. It's like, yeah, right. so one, it's a genre exercise. The genre right. being a thriller, right? right. It's a noir-ish, noir contingent mm-hmm. crime thriller. Second, it's a character piece. Yes. And the character emerges through the genre elements. So, yes. uh, so whatever the structure is of the, the crime thriller, the uh, person under duress becomes mm-hmm. extra person, right? Right, yes. So, the Michael Corleone. Right. And then it's a modestly made film that understands its ambitions and meets those. Yes. So I could watch a thousand of these. Yes. Um, I, you know, I I think it is a modest film and I'm fine with it being like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does it make a few moves here and there where I'm like, eh, whatever. But it is the kind of film that I wish we had many more of. Mm-hmm. So I, I do want to start with Emily, and mm-hmm. really dig into that situation, but also that character in that situation, because mm-hmm. what what she drives the plot, right? She is the mm-hmm. one who makes these decisions based upon the experiences that she's had and yep. the one that she's having. And the main one, seemingly, that she has this crushing debt. Mm, there's other things at yes. work there too. Why does she have the crushing debt? You know, so there's a lot that's sort of, um, it is subtextual and that the the thing that you mentioned, Jason, is that he's doling out information. And of course, there's a key revelation towards the end of the film. I don't know. It just reminded me, and I think it's kind of explicitly reminding me of Cassavetti's Gloria um, Mm -hmm. and then Eric Zwanka's uh, pseudo remake with Tilda Swinton, uh, Julia. I, and of course, yeah. now we have Emily. Um, so yeah. it reminds me of those kind of character pieces as genre film, um, especially like women under the crazy influence, like women yeah. under the external women, influence. Women under pressure. Yeah. yeah. Women under the influence and on the verge of a nervous breakdown with a guy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it's not just the debt, right? It's the, yep. and it's not even necessarily her putting aside her personal history, it's the context of the debt at this particular moment in history and the sensation that she's experiencing. And I think a lot of the other sort of, as she sort of gets into the underworld, the other underworld characters kind of have the same, express the same idea, sometimes subtly, but the idea of the game being rigged, the idea, it's not just that you have $70,000 of debt, it's that you have $70,000 debt and there's no way ever to crawl out from underneath it. Um, there's a very key interview scene, I think around the two-thirds mark, where she goes into finally, they've been talking about this interview for a long time, she finally goes into her friend's 
business to I, what, what kind of what kind of company is it? I've already forgotten. Uh, I think <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's a white collar. It's a more prestigious. I think. Yeah. yeah, it's a more prestigious white collar job. Yeah, and like she runs headlong into thing that pretty much any anybody under thirty can tell you about, which is the internship, the unpaid like catch, the catch twenty two of the unpaid internship. Uh-huh. And like so, it isn't just debt. It's debt as a trap, a debt right. that's been surrounded by booby traps to ensure that you can't leave it. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the very specific, you know, it's it's weird to talk about that because it doesn't necessarily come off as an overtly political film, but it absolutely right. is but it absolutely in that is. political context yes. and that modern, absolutely. where we are right now. Absolutely. And it's, it's strange to me that there haven't been more movies to take on this this very issue. I think we can think of a few. I can think of Magic Mike as a film about this living in this. Um, I'm I'm sure there are other event, and and that's the thing is that I always I want it to come through in genre. I don't want it to come through in a talking head documentary. Like I want to live in these stories because I can identify with these people. Um, I think I think I think you can argue that Sean Baker's films absolutely kind of have that same um, Tangerine, Florida Project. Project. Oh. oh, the dick. Red Rocket. The dick. The Red yeah. Rocket. Sorry, it's just called the dick now. Um, um good. Yeah, Jessica, I mean, we don't cut that as, out. As a, a, a kind of central motivation to explain uh, uh, why you know why characters are, are sort of uh, yeah, but even uh, like they they coexist, but, right? Like it's it's happening because yeah. of it, but it's also like it spurs the pop, plot. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I haven't seen many, uh, uh, what I don't see a lot of is the stories of of, uh, of uh, somebody like Emily who is caught at this, she's not exactly poor, but she's just really, really struggling, right? Or she, you wouldn't consider her poverty stricken, right? But she's just right. at the very lowest end of, of, of making ends meet, right? Yeah. Uh, and if this character were a little different, if she were a guy, Right, or if she were I, black or a minority or something like that, or there's any sort of other elements, there, there this would uh, um, change the underlying uh, kind of uh, dynamics and politics of it. And I, I think it's it's very important that she is um, a white, uh, you know, a pushing forty uh, uh, young woman, um, art school dropout. That, that yeah, like is yeah. a very specific set of expectations. And yeah, that, um, that creates the tension right in those early scenes when she yeah. first sits down for that you know that wonderful meeting. that wonderful opening scene part of the tension comes from oh i don't belong here or maybe yeah. i don't belong here because of who i am because of my like this is not for there's that feeling right. initial that tingle initial of ooh, this is not for me this is not and, something i should right and the wonder of, well, what, why isn't it for you yeah well you that's know? That gets to the the race issue, and I, I'm glad exactly, that you brought right? that up. Yeah. Is because everyone else in the room is is of color. Like there's one other white person in there, uh-huh. and so uh, yes, around the edges of this film, you you do see a political context that goes into intersectionality of race, class, gender, right. and um, I love that it's it is just sort of on the edges. What makes me nervous about that though is like. You have to have a white character as your sort of like way in. Is that well, you know, like why? I why think if she, we if have a million were... crime thrillers, though. Like, there's lots yeah. of movies about lots of lots of people, right? 
I think if she were, I, I think if, for instance, she were black, that would introduce the if the opening uh, a, a totally different element and a real red herring uh, in the uh, uh, in the initial uh, job interview scene. Right. It would change the dynamic of the job interview, and it would set up the expectation. I think in most people's minds these days, yeah. that a big you know the reason she's nervous in that scene is partly because she's self conscious about her race, right? Mm, um, I see what you're saying. And, okay. and so it's I like think that, it's that absence that she, of that race she, says something. Yeah, that we look at her and we say, you're white, you're pretty, you're, you have a lot of advantages. And yet she is ca- caught in this, um, in, in this hamster ball, the same way that, uh, 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 that, that so many other people are. Well, right? and, and the film... not enough, her privileges are not enough to get her out of this, uh, uh, this, this capitalist uh, uh, puzzle box. And the film throws that back in her face, literally. I mean, her best friend, who's trying to maybe trying to get her a job, um, is played by you know an American Nigerian actress. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the in the kinds of the film, she's a black woman who has made it, and yeah. then later she has that pivotal scene with Gina Gershon's character, the supervisor, who sort of throws mm-hmm. her her womanhood back in her face and says, "Well, I did it. What's your problem here?" Right. Um, right. So there's this idea that Emily's also surrounded by signifiers that are telling her. Well, why are you struggling? You shouldn't be struggling. You had up all these advantages. What's your problem, Emily? There's this, and there's, so there's a defensiveness. There's a defensive crouch, which I think I'll be positive is really good at conveying in this film. This, there's a defensive she, crouch yes. in her attitude through the whole movie about yes. her circumstances and what she's doing there. Yeah, I think, I, I think that you're exactly spot on with that. And then of course, the uh, enterprise that she gets involved with is is run by Middle Eastern men. And her involvement with that, I think, kind of furthers that because even within that, she's sort of the outsider. And mm-hmm. it feels several times throughout the film that she's actually able to leverage who she is and her social identities against other people. Um, and I, I, yeah, there's so there's a complexity there that is mm-hmm. so rich that isn't labored. I think yeah. is the important part. It's still like a crackling genre exercise um, and a character study. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not labored like, I'm going to call this, like, I don't know, killing them softly is what right. comes to mind immediately. I know you, <laughs> you like that movie. Yeah, but, you don't have to highlight anything or under, underline anything or put anything in a, in a weird font. It's right. so smart writing. I don't need Trump acting. on the TV. Yeah, it's smart yeah. writing and smart acting combined yeah. together. I think of that scene... To, to the point of the group that she gets involved with, I think of that scene where her boyfriend takes her to visit his mom. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of plays as this, well, the other thing that I think is interesting is that they don't not, the director made the decision not to subtitle any of the Arabic, uh, which is which is nice, because it puts us in Emily's headspace. She doesn't understand what, mm-hmm. what they're saying. But there's that scene at the, at the where they, like, they're sitting outdoor on the patio or whatever, and he introduces her mom, and it's playing as this very, almost kind of sweet, romantic film where, like, oh, this is, like, an Arab American man taking taking his white girlfriend home to see his mom. And they're trying to introduce her and make her feel comfortable. And they're, the mom and the, the girlfriend are kind of starting to commiserate a little bit. And then there's the tension of the brothers arriving and the way that, again, without the film belaboring it, because it's well-written and well-acted and well-shot, we can feel the energy in the air change completely the minute those two brothers enter the little garden there and sit right. down and make themselves comfortable. And suddenly the whole dynamic has shifted. That's just, that's just good That's just good filmmaking right there in that little, that shift. Mm-hmm. And there's a key element of great thrillers and that's performing and performance as a survival tactic. 
that she is not really his girlfriend. He asks her to do that as a favor. Of course, mm -hmm. they've already been biblically knowing each other. And, <laughs> um, you know, the, it's palpable, the romance between them. But mm -hmm. throughout this film, she is tasked with performing as other and under the eight minutes, the eight minutes, someone, the eight minute scene where she's given uh -huh. the job. So the first job is kind of petty larceny, right? <clears throat> the next job is purchasing a, a what, what kind of car is that? What kind of car? Uh -huh. Anybody know? Maserati? I'm just yeah, saying cars. Uh, I don't know. Fancy um, expensive car. That's all we do. Fancy, it's very expensive car, car yeah. with a black Amex, which means no limit, baby. Fake one. And she's got eight minutes to do it. She knows she has eight minutes to do it because they've done this sort of things before. And once you run that card, that credit card company is going to inquire about that purchase with the uh, seller within eight minutes. Uh -huh. So not only does she have to buy a car, meaning like sign a bunch of paperwork and she has to perform as someone who's trying to buy a car within eight minutes. You know how well that goes for Janet Lee and Psycho, which <laughs> like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I see what they're doing. Um, and But then she has to like go get the car. And you're like, uh -huh. I watched this with my boyfriend and we were both like, this is not going to end well for her. <laughs> This <laughs> and again, this smart filmmaking. So like one thing that that scene does as she's going out to, to get the car, her eyes flick and she looks at the gate. The gate is open. Right. Like she's that, that's just that's that, how smart she is. The movie doesn't that's have to tell right. us that. It's just mm -hmm. that, that, that that's smart filmmaking right there. Yes. Right. And it's a, a smart way to indicate your character is smart. Right. Ami Praza does some great work in that scene in particular, but throughout the whole movie, really, of like so it's it's often boring when you have an actor or a director who isn't interesting it's boring to watch characters react to things but so much of this movie is watching her face when she's not talking watching like her her gears turning as she's making calculations right. and thinking about how to do things it's a hard thing to do and um there's only a limited number of actors who can do it well i think and she's one of the few um right. her like of her say. generation who's doing a really great job with it I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of hers. I'm not in the bag for her though, either. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, I don't want to change the subject, but the second season of White Lotus, I, I really thought that she, not, uh, she, she was not spectacular and really the, the storyline was the worst thing about that, that season. But anyway, I don't want to, <laughs> we're not here to talk about television. But did, but did you see um, Ingrid Goes West from a couple of years ago? Yes, I did. She was really good. I, I thought she was really good. Enough. She's great. Really that. Yeah. But uh, but an even more like sociopathic character. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 A hollow, uh, a hollow person where a person should be. Yes. Right. Yes. More often than not, she is that. More often than not, she is just a quip machine and a deadpan quip machine. And right. I, I've, I've, read and heard interviews with her where she's talked about i need out of it and this is a very happy medium where she's able to take that it's it's like a star performance she's able to carry over what people love about her but yes. still in, embody a a full-blooded human being with that, you believe her circumstances, you believe the decisions that she makes, and she makes some very extreme decisions, especially in the, the final third of the film, yeah. um, when she decides to put fate in her own hands and right. give people a taste of their own medicine, because this is what she's learned to do. And she's gone so far that she won't go back. And you believe that because you believe Aubrey Plaza as this woman.
But she never surrenders her weird Aubrey Plaza-ness. No, she no. Never... And there's so... an important detail we haven't mentioned. It's the Jersey. It's the Jersey accent. <laughs> <laughs> not quite her original, not quite her original accent. She's like from <laughs> Delaware, I think. It's... Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. She's got an East Coast thing, but her jersey is pretty heavy at the beginning and uh-huh. kind of comes in and out. It's fine okay. because, uh, okay. or maybe I got accustomed to it. I don't know. I'm not that smart to, <laughs> to know how I feel. I think, I think I did read somewhere that um, some LA, I, saw, I read some LA critics who were saying they actually really liked it because it's how like blue collar folks from the east coast sound when they get to la after a few years they kind of drift they don't like immediately change and they don't decisively change they drift in and out they slightly like even code switch depending on what their situation is where that their 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 east coast strong east coast accent like whether it's philadelphia new york new jersey whatever kind of comes and goes once they settle out in la that tracks and that and that's a great point to the one i made earlier about performances survival Mm -hmm. um you know that's another thing that she's She's an outsider in LA, a town that's completely outsiders for the most part. Um, but she, the second she opens her damn mouth, like, like hi, Jersey girl. Like, uh-huh. I know exactly where you're from. And I think the inherent, you, we're talking about like, what is the Aubrey Plaza-ness of this role? Like what, what are the markers that she's bringing from what we stereotypically think of her as a performer? And I think the two interview scenes are cre- crucial because they're they're the scenes uh, where we get a little like vicarious catharsis, where she says in the interview what we all we've always wanted to say, uh-huh. and that there's probably no better person to put like an, an angry, indignant millennial in, right? Yeah, to, to talk right. back to the to the <laughs> asshole in, interviewer than to have Aubrey Plaza do it. So like to me, that's like the moment when I felt like that's her old persona that she was sort of welded to for a long time, flashing. That anger coming out and flashing is where we get that. Um, but you're right; it, it, it is it, it is not for the majority of the time. It's not a typical role for her, which is great. Mm-hmm. That scene. Can we talk about it? Um, the person who's interviewing her is Gina Gershon, which is mm-hmm. interesting because this is a Gina Gershon role. If it it were in the '90s, it would be hypersexualized, and it would be Gina Gershon. Like it kind of reminds me of bound in that you, you've got that noirish thing like she's recalling something that's not you know that's not unintentional showgirl showgirls right because of her position of power uh-huh as the established one i think we're meant to think of showgirls uh it's a little like erin brockovichy to me it's a little <laughs> a little uh, too i have boobs. so is that the place where it's on the nose that that's same? it's it's on the nose for me it's yeah and yeah. it's like it's thesis is within there and with yeah. her quip but you know what i get the impulse to do it it's opry plaza don't you want to see her yell at gina gershon <laughs> that way um and it's uh the thing that i remember like bits of it from the trailer or like hearing about it on other shows that's sort of the scene that i've been anticipating throughout the film and and the, but the way it's positioned and where it is in the film makes so much sense. I thought that was going to be one of the first scenes is that no. she doesn't get the job or she's doing an unpaid internship and therefore she does this because you sort of have to bend over backwards to put a character in this position. I just watched the film Private Benjamin. I know this is a weird 
analogy. <laughs> follow, follow me. Are you doing your own random pod uh, movie podcast? We yes. just did a Nancy Myers thing. <laughs> we though, did so. a Nancy Myers thing. And <laughs> that was a, a blind spot for me, but I just watched Private Benjamin. And this is a, a wealthy woman who gets married into a, another wealthy family and her husband dies on their wedding night. And you're like, okay, but I know she gets enlisted in the military. How in the fuck do you get that person from point A mm-hmm. to point B without breaking a sweat? And it's <laughs> it's that you have to believe that a character would make that decision. And yeah. you believe that this person, it, she, she just is talked into enlisting into the military because she has nothing else going for her. And this person's so low that you believe it. And here I'm thinking like, She's got to have like mistaken identity stuff. Like I wasn't trusting Nancy Myers enough after doing deep dives for this podcast. <laughs> but it's it's a similar situation here. It's like, you have to believe that this person eventually in the end would become mm-hmm. like a small crime syndicate boss. Right, yes. <laughs> All predicated on credit card theft. Right. Yeah, um, um, you and, mentioned uh, you mentioned Michael Corleone earlier, and I was thinking about that yeah. too. Not just not just in the sense that all crime movies make us think of The Godfather, but, sure, right, right. But also because I th- think there was a screenwriting podcast that was talking about it recently that I had listened to. They were talking about Michael being at least in Godfather One, being the you know the non arc arc. It's just a downward slide. But there mm-hmm. is a moment where he falls off the cliff, and that's the moment after he's the attempt on his father's life when he's punched by the cop. And mm-hmm. he makes, there's that great slow zoom on him sitting on that, right. and that easy chair and oh, making decision and on. laying out almost in real time, like you, he's he's voicing his thoughts, laying out right. the plan. And that's sort of the break point. After that, you know, it's all, it's a straight drop off a cliff from here once he makes that decision. And this, right. Emily has done criminal things, but there's something about that scene, that second interview where she's just like, yeah, you know what? Fuck this. Where you can feel it has that same energy of, okay, now we've crossed the Rubicon. Even though she's mm-hmm. done criminal stuff, some bad stuff, that's right. the moment she, she decides, that. I don't want to be a part of whatever bullshit this is anymore. I need to go back to, to what was working. Are you saying she breaks bad? Yes. <laughs> well, obviously, we're, I mean, that always comes up as well, but I don't think yeah. in a bad way because... No. So I do want to ask you... Um, you guys, what you thought about, and Jason in particular, because you picked this film and you've talked about how much you love it. Um, I want you, I want to talk about, like, do you feel like there's anything else deeper going on here than just being a genre exercise? Because one thing I started to think about, particularly after the conversation that she has with um, the mother of her boyfriend slash not boyfriend, is she talks about, yeah, she, Yusuf, she talks about what, you know, figuring out what you are. And it's kind of like a cringy moment because their mom's only suggesting sort of womanly roles. Do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be a you mom? You could be Emily the teacher. You could be yeah. Emily the mother. That's, right. But one thing- I, love, I do love that. And, I do. That's, that's just a great- the, that's the, And you're waiting for it. Right? <laughs> they waiting. almost said the title, but yeah. it's, uh, right, it's yes, kind of smart right. because it is about identity. Yeah, right. Sorry, yes. go ahead, Andrew. But like to me, that's, that's where my ears perk up because- I love any criminal film about character studies about criminals are always really fascinating to me, but I love mm-hmm. anytime we start talking about in a more existential way about like, what, who am I? Mm-hmm. What, like, what am I in my essence? You know, am I right. what I do or who I think am I the identity in my head or, or am I more defined by my actions? Is there a role that really makes me who I am? And I think this film, I don't think it 100% embraces that idea, but it definitely is interested in it. 
So what do you think about um, that? Do you think, do you think I, that's there? Or am I reading too much? No, it? no, no. I, I think that's absolutely definitely there. Uh, to compare, you go back to the Godfather for a second. Um, uh, you know, we see in that movie is we see uh, uh, Michael, who begins as this uh, 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 pretty principled guy, um, not in the family business, um, realize that, you know, he becomes Michael the criminal because what he realizes is that family is more important. Family is the most important thing, more important than all these rules. The the law was more important than all the criminal rules. <laughs> it, what's that? I thought it was breakfast. <laughs> but um, so it, there's the suspension of the ethical that goes on uh, there in, in favor of his family. Uh, it's a little, you have to pick at, uh, I think, why Emily becomes Emily the criminal um, is, a, is a little more abstract. Um, it's not anything as concrete as, as uh, her family ties. I think it, it's this slow realization that, yes, we pretend that the system is built on freedom and opportunity, but um, the freedom and opportunities are, are dangled like the water held on a stick out in front of the donkey to get it, uh, to, get it to walk across the desert, right? How do you get out of that? Well, you can just rip the apparatus off and you can just walk wherever in the, the hell you want to walk, right? And I think that, uh, that what we get in, in the end is um, Emily really embracing the fact that I'm not going to play this game anymore. I'm not going to pretend I, I believe in the system anymore. I'm going to take in the way that you're not supposed to take. But then again, in the, exactly the way that every, it seems like everybody else is taking. And I think that's a crucial tenet of this genre. And that's what interests me about the genre is that the mode of entertainment is particularly thrilling because there's an element of what would I do? Mm-hmm. Would I go to this extreme? And it is an, a genre of extremes. Ultimately, it does become about identity and the kind of shifting plates and when things collide and what comes up from that, Right. Um, to give a really bad metaphor. But it's the thing that thrills me about my favorite directors. It's 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 Hitchcock. It's De Palma. Um, it's often Claire Denis. I think she makes genre exercises that are hit with a hammer and split apart and put back together. We might be talking about that sometimes. Yeah. Hmm. But you put people in these extreme situations and you see, who am I? Am I that I did this extreme thing? Am I a different oh. person because I'm in extenuating circumstances? Yeah, and it's the stuff that just thrills me. It's the stuff I think about with the neo-noir, um, which this uh, would fit in with, uh, especially of the 80s and 90s. Thinking about oh, Mass Seduction, Blood Simple. I mean, all of these kinds of films. And of course, uh, the ones I mentioned earlier. It was a very, a very, very early Miramax deal. Yes. There's also, I think, in that third act when things kind of really crank up and she's making a bunch of, um, she's basically just sort of embracing violence and cutting, like burning all her bridges and doing, going as hard as she can. Partly because, again, we talked about this earlier, that like no one suspects her to do, of doing that. Yeah. Um, so it's like, that's, I might as well seize this advantage while I have it. But there's also that, I mean, again, not everything goes back to Breaking Bad, but it does make me think of that idea of maybe that third act, I think she's starting to think, Am I good at this? Like, yeah. is that is that who I am? Am I Emily the yeah. criminal because this is my skill set? I just haven't right. really had a chance to use it so far, which yeah. is a different, which is a moment of like both personal revelation and also kind of like she's proud of herself figuring it out, but also there's a whole moment of horror where you recoil from that a little bit. Well, and it's it's all relative too. I mean, 
let's talk about what I mean, we don't have to actually do this, but think about is what she's doing a crime. When I have someone steal my credit card, no one, please, no one steal my credit card. It sounds so bad. I don't know why <laughs> just call their asses and they're like, oh, well, it's stolen and uh, I'll erase those purchases. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Who is um, this? This crime isn't hurting anybody. Yeah. It's yeah. not like getting mugged. I mean, like, I'm not saying it's not a crime, but like getting mugged no. is way worse. Than right. That. Right. Like, having so a number what, stolen or whatever. Yeah. That's what's really interesting about it, too, is that. It's all sort of relative and, you know. You're not uh, robbing a person. You're literally robbing the system. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's subtext in the film too, because again, to, it it touches on race and being a woman and so forth. But like, what? why does Emily initially not want to take the late shift at the beginning of the movie that arguably sets the entire plot in motion? She's like, uh, I don't like being downtown at night. Right. Right. Like, I'm a white woman walking around at night in LA. And, and downtown LA is a completely different scene than other neighborhoods in LA. So like there, there is that element of do I belong here? Do people suspect me? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to um, compliment how hard it is to end a movie like this and, and how well I think Ford uh, finishes this movie. The third, the third act itself uh, the, and the climax m- might have some plausibility problems, but in terms of where Emily ends up and how this ends up resolving, I think it's absolutely perfect. I, I um, buy it. I buy it because I buy the yeah. character. And and, and this, could, this could have ended in some moralistic way with her having to pay the price and the moral universe being reset. What I it could have expecting. ended in some very, very dark way with, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, that it underscores a cynicism of how, you know, with her in prison or something. Instead, but, or it could, it could have ended in a more like escapist note, which is what I was kind right, of like yes. fearing. Like I was like, oh, she just she just goes away to paradise and lives She's out just her on life. The beach. No, but like it's those yeah. last shots that are clear. It's the last yeah. shots that are bringing us back full circle. Her repeating the same things that Yusef originally said to her. It's like, oh, she never got out. She doesn't want to be out. She wants right. to be a part of this. And I was afraid there at the end that the movie was just going to end with her, you know, on the beach. I, how often do I leave a movie like so pleased by the very last scene or shot? You know, that leaves. So it, it yeah set me up into a really smiling. So I thought uh, she was going to die. Oh, sure, sure. Right. I was, or, uh, that's why I, we kept saying to each other, this isn't going to end well. This isn't right. going to end well. But it ends like in a, in a reasonably credible place. Right? right. In a way that's both a happy ending, but also. Is it a happy ending? Because that's what that's what got her there in the first place. And right, now yeah. she's up a level. I don't know, <laughs> Emily. You better watch your back. Right. Know. Yeah. But you get the feeling that she will. <laughs> Um, that she's maybe smart enough to pull this off. The director is John Patton Ford. You know, uh-huh. I made a joke earlier that it's John Ford. I, I wasn't really aware of anything else he had done. It's his first movie. So as a debut, it's really confident. As yeah, a film yeah. standing on its own, I find it a little bit anonymous, which I think is okay. Stylistically, stylistically you mean? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. I was just kind of curious what you thought of because for me it's all the script in the performance he, and, he did write the script as well though it's a writer director yeah. so for, those are the things that really stand out and of course execution you have to be able to carry those things off um i don't know what you know what i'm expecting out of it but what we're talking about is like a modestly made indie crime movie and it looks like that handheld a lot of handheld yeah Right. Yeah, pretty much all handheld, right? Yeah. I think about like what the Safties are up to. 
and they're kind of very twisted dark fantasies and yeah how cinematic those are not every not everything can be good time i'm sorry (laughs) or heaven knows what or daddy long yeah 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 i mean they're just coming from different places i'm excited to see what he would do next or or even you know you talk about sean baker i mean not everybody not everybody has that that ability to fight to just yeah baker has that comedic sensibility that runs as a thread the the comedic the comedy of the absurd and a, and a thread of warmth that runs through this movie through his films this movie is neither funny nor warm like it is a yeah. cold hard bash yeah. on the concrete of a movie well she's funny we should she's say funny. she's funny she's yeah. funny yeah I, I mean uh i think there's there is a there's a lack of 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 flair here and uh in terms of like a capital a auteur i think this movie is really just a, a uh a life support system for its for its really wonderful genre screenplay you yeah. know and i think that the uh the kind of no style style of this works so well that i think it's a conscious choice it doesn't scream auteur that's a good that's a good way of putting it but I do think there is some style here. I, I I thought the I wrote down in my notebook here montage that there's some nice sequences where we, we allied time, we allied processes like Emily going through processes or things happening off screen through really smart, rapid montage in a way that never felt disorienting. It felt absolutely well placed. So it's a crisp, it's a crisp screenplay, you know. If, mm-hmm. Assuming that that was written in and that the film hand the film handles it well. So it's it's not just that it was written in; it's that it's placed correctly. It's cut, edited in a way that makes sense. So I mentioned earlier, I love that little editing flick where we get Emily looking at the open gate at the car, at yeah. the Armenian car dealership. Like that, those are the touches that see to me, it don't, doesn't scream style necessarily, but it screams to right. me a director who comes, again, comes out of the gate with the deba- debut where they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, that's learning something from the school of Hitchcock, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of Hitchcockian sort of a, a visual storytelling here. You know, there isn't a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson sort of like, you know, zoom, zoom shots. Corsese, and, uh, you know, pans. Yeah. And yeah uh, so, I mean, you don't, you don't watch this and think, uh, you know, the way that you, you looked at Boogie Nights and thought, you know, wow, this person's ex- going to explode, right? Definitely not looking at this the way I'm looking at Boogie Nights. <laughs> Speaking of which, as the resident well, gay, who, yes. the resident thirsty gay, I would also um, fall into a criminal underworld if Theo Rossi, <laughs> the guy who plays Yusuf, were to invite me in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he so, is he's char- charming. He's charming. Like, he's that dangerous kind of low-level criminal who can, like, talk you into doing bad things. Uh-huh. And he's <laughs> right. charming because he's he's not, like, overtly charming. He's charming because he's sort of ingratiating. Does that make sense? Like, the way he sits down at Emily's kitchen table without being invited and just starts looking through her drawings uh-huh, uh-huh right that's that's uh-huh. a guy who knows what how to yeah. like play a failed art student <laughs> yes and right. no yeah and yeah and there's something there's there's a, a charming harmlessness about him right yeah um, that very quickly belies though that that he's not harmless at all <laughs> right so you mentioned earlier that you and matt had done your tops mm-hmm. you like this enough where it was in your top five Definitely. You know, I have a personal reaction to this movie that I that I think is uh, maybe slightly beyond. You know, I'll, I'll defend the merit the merits of this movie, but I I had, a, I had an intense personal reaction to this movie. Uh, saying it was probably the most fun and the best I felt walking out of a movie this year, and the most. Awesome. You know, as a critic, you're you're always you know walking out writing your your uh, your critique. You know, you're always thinking, about, well, this could have been better, or that could have been better. This is the what you, about once a year I walk out of a movie with no notes. 
right? You know, with no like, I would change this or would have done that. I just, you know, and things come later, obviously, right? Uh, in, in terms of that, I think that this, uh, you know, combined with what it does versus its ambitions, I think this is my favorite movie from this year. I mean, granted, I have uh, I have not seen. Uh, there are about five movies that I I, I still need to see that, that are kind of major players that are coming up on a lot of top ten lists, but. Um, I doubt that I'm going to see I'm going to see a movie I like more than this this year. I felt that way about my number one when I saw it too. The second time that I saw it, first time I was like, "What the what the fuck just happened to me?" I I love that feeling. Like yes, yes, it's that's not great. an important yeah. movie that I just saw. I can't wait to keep living in that movie. Yes. What so? What else is on your list? The, my other choices are, are pretty boring. Uh, everything everywhere. No. Is uh, you know I I I that I I so hope that wins Best Picture and not Fablemans. What the fuck, Jason? You hate those Fablemans? Oh God, I hated Fablemans. <gasps> oh wow, I hated that movie. Matt and I uh, almost had to get like uh, our sister podcast, uh, My Favorite Murder. They have their own uh, therapist for the uh, for the you know just professional therapist. Matt and I sometimes talk about how we need a professional therapist. It almost got out of hand over the Fablemans. <laughs> Because I, I I had a really intense, yeah. intense yeah. negative uh, reaction. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we have to change the subject right now. What else <laughs> is on your list? Uh, so uh, the Banshee's Venture uh, is is an absolutely wonderful film. What a weird see! I do this. I can't say something good about something or somebody without uh, without throwing shade at somebody. Um, so it's so good to see Michael McDonough return to form after uh, uh, three billboards outside of somewhere that bears no resemblance to Missouri. Um, <laughs> He's uh, back in his uh, on his home turf and uh, really uh, doing things. He really working with people he really understands. Uh, the menu would be on uh, somewhere on, uh, on my top ten. Uh, I love that movie. Uh, I just recommended it uh, to a friend the other day. Menu or glass onion? Pick one, quick. Uh, the menu. I kind of agree, but I like them about the same. But I would pick the menu again. I've seen Glass Onion twice now. Uh, yeah, Glass Onion. I. The, the, both those movies I feel um, are, they're fine, but I, I feel like the, the culture around them um, is so enthusiastic <laughs> that I feel a little left out, you know, that I don't, that I'm not, you know, that I don't adore them. I get it. Yeah. So, yeah. Very good. No, I'd say that's a solid list. All right. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you'll have me back again. We'll have you back again. We'll make you... Yeah. Um, watch Urban Cowboy again. <laughs> we'll, we'll make Andrew watch Urban Cowboy. How's that? <laughs> so what, where can folks find your podcast? We are Cinema Spin. Yeah, if you just type uh, cinemaspinthepodcast.com, uh, you can uh, find our website. Uh, we're also on all, on all of the, uh, uh, you can find us on, uh, on at the usual places for, uh, for, for podcasts. So I like your format. I've never listened to you guys before, but I, now I kind of want it. I love the one one current and one completely picked out of the algorithm's ass. What That's was right. the one with family plot? Like you guys didn't like family plot the way I liked it, but uh-huh. what did you watch family plot with? Morbius. Oh God. <laughs> this is a really fun episode because they're they're like fucking Morbius. And I don't understand this Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> I don't know what this is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. And Andrew and I are going to do our top 10 movies of 2022. Thank you, Jason. Jason's given us his tops. And now 
I don't, are we going to argue? I don't, I don't think we're, no, I don't want to. I think we're, I think this is going to be a nice mix of very different opinions about whether right. these movies belong on these top 10 lists combined with a handful that we both put up there. Yes. Yes. So how are we doing this? Are we doing like, let's bounce back countdown, and forth. Countdown, countdown. alternating. Yeah. Okay. Let's count down, baby. <laughs> um, if anything, you know, I have to gamify something. So let's oh, count down from 10. Right. Need some suspense. I'll go first, which is going to give you the very last number one. Okay. How's that? Great. Sounds good. Any are, we do, are we doing honorable mentions? Just at the end, we're going to rattle off. I have like 20 things I can rattle off. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, my number 10 choice mm-hmm. for a film of 2022 kind of surprises me. It's uh, something I reviewed early in the year, but as things shook out, I'm like, I love this fucking movie. It's called Rock Bottom Riser. Oh, yeah. It is, it is a like essay film about Hawaii and specifically indigenous people on uh, Moana Kei. I don't have proper pronunciation. I apologize. But it gets into like layers of history as they are layers of earth. And it's just like a post-punk sort of apocalyptic look at uh, colonialism and how white people have affected culture on uh, this island and specifically how that culture has survived in certain alcoves of it. This is the film that has one of my favorite scenes of the year. It is takes place in a poetry class that is clearly an adult learning poetry class, all kinds of different people. And the instructor wants to break down the uh, poetry of the Simon and Garfunkel film uh, song, I Am a Rock. I am a rock. I am an island. An island has no name. And it's a little sure on the nose, but whatever. I think it's a great allegory for this film that's just kind of beautiful collision of ideas and sights and sounds. I think the way you described it earlier this year, it made me think that it did does have it's not an avant-garde film, but it has a slight avant-garde or experimental quality to it, the way you described yes. it. Yeah. Don't go in think, thinking you're gonna get talking heads or anything, but it isn't. I, I don't think it's a film that's that alienating. I think it's less than 80 minutes long. So that's my number 10. Um, what's your number 10? Um, I'm going to go with the film Happening by Audrey Diwan. This is a French film um, that I saw earlier this year. I mean, I saw it over half a year ago, and I'm still sort of vibrating about it, about how great it is. Um, this is an adaptation of the uh, newly Nobel Prize winning author, Annie Arnaud, mm. um, a autobiographical novel that she wrote about her experiences in the 1960s, trying to obtain what was then an illegal abortion in France while she was uh, she became pregnant in college. Um, and this is just, you know, I don't think this is a movie that's going to change anybody's mind. If you weren't anti-abortion, it's not a movie that's going to convince you to be pro-choice. I also conversely, I don't think it's anything so straightforward as a sort of preaching to the choir pro-choice film. It's a much more interesting film about being alone, being a woman, a young woman alone and not having support from anybody and trying to sort of secure your future, your safety, your integrity in an environment that is hostile to it from almost every side. It's not, it is not never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's not about making the decision. More than that, it's not about having anybody you can rely on. You know, the pivotal part for both four months and never rarely is the idea of a feminine relationship that helps support the decision and helps carry out the decision. 
this is a movie about very much about a woman being alone. So yeah. I don't want to go into it too much about the plot, but it's an f- incredible film, incredible lead performance um, from an actress who I'm absolutely going to mispronounce, Anna Maria Bartolome, um, who is just absolutely riving it as the main character. If, if the world just world, I think this would be a best actress, best yes. director, and best adapted screenplay competitor because it is that strong. It's my number 11. I think we maybe talked about this. We did talk about it on a previous podcast. It is one of the most vital films of the year. I think it was kind of a relative weak year for film overall. No, um, no. I disagree. I but... And yet I can rattle off 30 films that I think are great. Weak is relative when you're a film critic, right? Yeah, because like... yeah, you see everything. Number nine from you. Num- my number nine is Saint-Omer. Oh. This is Alice Diop's narrative feature debut. Kind of. (laughs) It is based on uh, actual events of a woman who was sent to trial for the murder of her infant child. And the film sensibly is a a courtroom uh, drama where this woman is on trial and essentially doesn't really defend herself, but states that she wants to figure out what happened herself. And not only is it it sort of heartbreaking in in what's going on, but there's also uh, a a superstructure to it where it's a journalist, filmmaker, um, educator, is you're seeing it as she's experiencing it. And as it turns out, she's actually a pregnant woman. And deeply ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. But it's a film that unfolds like uh, Robert Bresson, and specifically, you have to think of Trial of Joan of Arc um, because of the trial aspect to it. I just saw this movie last two weeks ago, before before Christmas. It's so fucking riveting. How many movies could you have where characters, everything happened before the film, and it's basically uh-huh. just characters recounting things, sometimes uh-huh. from slightly different perspectives. There's no flashbacks. It's, it's just no, no. people in a courtroom talking. It's amazing. And it's every choice that Diop makes that is insane to me it's the kind of film that when when it cuts your entire world changes and it's just a cut from someone um speaking to another person speaking a great spatial control of that courtroom like using that space and where everybody is arranged in a french criminal courtroom Mm -hmm. to fantastic effect now as far as its veracity or verisimilitude to to french courts i i don't know Hmm. um because a lot of it seemed to me like they really do it like that? Anyway, um, it's a great film, uh, ultimately about women and about Black women and their experience and um, the specific experience of these two and how they do and do not relate to each other. I, I do want to shout out to the, the the woman who plays the woman on trial, the actress, uh, Guslagi Malanga. She's oh. a French, French, Black French actress. She hasn't made any movies since a movie I saw like a decade ago that I freaking loved called uh, My Friend Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she started, she came out of nowhere, started this movie, made a huge impression on me. And now she hasn't made a movie for 10 years and now she's back with this. Just like, what a great two, like, I, I wish I, she had been in more movies, but what a great twofer. And the in the, the film is her face. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of ochre brown prison garb that they put her in. It's just, it, that, that's the image of the movie is her on the stand. It's so spare too. It's so spare and so rich. And I love that kind of thing. <laughs> and it hasn't come out here yet theatrically, but it will be shortly. I'm hoping. What's your number nine, Andrew? My number nine is The Eternal Daughter, which <gasps> is I just saw um, about a week ago. I know you're happy about this. 
Is this going to be coming up? Maybe it, this is definitely coming up. So maybe maybe we should defer. Let's let's hold on to it. Okay. My number eight mm-hmm. is Beba. Mm. This is this is one uh, I haven't seen, but I've heard a lot about it. So this is uh, available on Hulu now, and it is another sort of essay film, but this is a personal essay film uh, about a woman whose family name is Beba. Uh, her name is Rebecca Hunt, and it is about her family. Um, it is about her. Her family's from Dominican Republic, and she's first-generation American. And it is about not only that, but what it is to be in a family. And then what it is specifically to be Afro-Latina family, to be her very specific identity, but also under the very specific circumstances in which she came to this country and has lived in this country. So is this is this documentary or autofiction? It's a documentary. Okay. It is a documentary, but it is a documentary that is very sort of freeform, that uses a lot of personal family uh, effects, and that sort of relates to another film on my list that does some very similar things. If you were to have a filmmaker's sort of personality explode onto the screen, that's this kind of film. And she's very young, interested in music, pot smoker. It's just, it goes not only through her family's history, but also sort of the history of a sort of general story of immigration in the States and New York specifically. Beautiful film. Absolutely love it. Um, and it's on Hulu right now. And a huge risk to make a film like that about yourself as a young filmmaker. And it's the kind of film that you can tell she's been working towards and thinking about with all of these footage. And that sort of becomes a part of it too, is how do I tell my own story? Beba, my number eight. What's your number eight? My number eight is The Northman, the third feature film from Robert Eggers. I know you aren't as enthusiastic about this. I am not, but I am fascinated. I kind of like didn't know where this could end up, but the more and more I thought about it, the more I felt like this movie needs to be in my top 10. I won't even say it's Robert Eggers' best film. I think The Witch is basically a perfect film. It's one of my favorite films in the last decade. But this movie, the more I think about it, the more it grows on me. I'm not a person who likes my own writing. So to take this take this with a grain of salt. I think the best thing I wrote last year was my review of The Northman in terms of, I feel like I did the best job of conveying what about this movie works so spectacularly. I think I, we've talked about, again, I think we talked about this in the previous pod, so I'm not going to belabor it. But um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's pretty much available to rent everywhere. This is a spectacular film. It is not an epic. I think that's one thing I see a lot of people labeling it as. And for a movie that is described as epic, it has basically one battle scene one duel and that's it there's not not a lot of traipsing around the you know a vast world that's basically a three location tragedy based on the legends that originally inspired hamlet so there's a sketch of a familiar dramatic story there but really what sells this film is the, the verisimilitude of it the way that eggers and his crew plunge us into this world not just in terms of like ooh, great costume design great location scouting it's everything about how this film was written. Eggers wrote the, wrote the script with an Icelandic poet um, who helped him with it. And it it's about immersing you in um, what it was like to be alive in 10th century, you know, Scandinavia. Not just in the sense of, oh, it's hard, it was hard being alive in the Dark Ages, but in the sense for what is the worldview? How is this world so alien and different? The values, the traditions are so alien from what we experience. It's not a word again, a lot like the witch sort of did with Puritan colonial America. 
again, if you're looking for like a rip roaring action film set in the fan, sort of a historical period that is comfortable, this is not a comfortable film. This is meant film that's meant in some ways to alienate you. I compared it to The Assassin from a few years ago um, as a film that sort of deliberately is trying to make the past seem weird and strange to us. I, I haven't stopped thinking about it, so I feel like it has to go on the top 10. I did feel alienated by it and like a distance from it. I would like to revisit it sometime when I have more distance to it. I feel like um, watching it at home like I did was a disadvantage to both of us. <laughs> yeah. It worked great as, I mean, I'm not a theatrical fetishist by any stretch. Most of the movies I watched this year were at home, but I do think I benefited probably from seeing it in a theater. I think I saw it at the IMAX theater at Ronnie's. Pricey. I don't think I could handle that. All those abs on that screen. There is a lot. Much. There's so much neck in Alexander Sars' guide. He has so much neck. That's a thick dude. He's so thick. Anyway, um, speaking of thick, <laughs> you you can really wade in the humidity in, in my number seven. That's Stars at Noon. Oh, yes. Which is going to come we, up again. So it's going to come up again uh, on your list? or No, not on my list. Episode? Are we going to talk about it in a different episode or no? We are going to talk about it in a different episode. So guess what? Pay attention, listeners. <laughs> Stars at Noon. I, I do like this movie a lot. It just didn't crack my top 10. It's on Hulu. We'll probably talk about that too. Um, yeah, I keep bringing it up on this podcast. I think we talk about it a lot. Um, but that's my number seven. Um, so we will reserve conversation until then. Uh, what's yours? Number seven. Uh, my seven is, is another film I think we both love, which is Great Freedom. Um, a film that played yes. at QFest last year. Um, that kind of snuck up on me. I didn't know exactly what to expect. Uh, this is by the filmmaker Sebastian Mies or Mice, starring you know one of our great international stars right now, Franz Rogowski, um, and an amazing performance. This is a film about um, a man who goes to prison in sort of mid-century Germany after World War II. The Nazis are out of power, but all the sort of Nazi era anti uh, homosexual uh, laws are on the books still. So he's basically been thrown in prison for being gay. And it's interesting because it's not, while it is a movie that is sort of a harrowing look at how, you know, freedom can be returned to a subset of people while another set of people can still be locked in a certain kind of bondage. It's very much a movie about love, weirdly enough, and about how mysterious and unpredictable and chaotic love is and how like we don't it's weird to say that it might be like the most romantic movie of the years about two two guys in prison who should not be compatible like how that love can persist right endurance endurance and that we can't i thought i was thinking often of you know there's an emily dickinson line about the heart knows you know what it wants even if even if it no matter what else i paraphrase the heart knows what it wants even no matter what the rest of the world says and this feels like a movie about that. Also, I mean, if After Sun wasn't going to be appearing later, it might be have one of my favorite <laughs> final shots, final scenes of the year. Just fucking gut punch. Somehow beautiful and also devastating at the same time. Devastating, yeah. So great film, um, pretty much available to rent everywhere now. It was out earlier this year. Um, highly recommend it. Not, not a typical prison drama or even a typical like gay romance film in any respect. And just amazing filmmaking, amazing performances. So happy that we got that at QFest. Um, I think it was a really big year for QFest. I have a few QFest films <laughs> in my 30-ish. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud to have, have 
program that one for QFest. And it's on Mubi right now. Mm-hmm. People can watch it if they have a subscription. It's a good programming call. This straight dude loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a conversion. You know what else is on Mubi? Decision to leave by number Ooh. six. But uh, I have a feeling let's defer. Sit on it. Sit on it. All right. What's your number six? Uh, my number six is Women Talking, the new film by Sarah Polly, which is a film I, I was anticipating. Um, maybe had a little nervousness about because I was like, I really want to see. I really been excited about this movie for like six months. Is it going to be as good as I think it's going to be? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I don't. You you didn't respond as strongly to it, but um, it did not. But... Um, I really loved it. So I read the novel by Marion Troyes a couple of years ago and really uh, really loved it. Um, Sarah Polly is a filmmaker who I think is good, but I don't necessarily think she's her previous films. I've watched almost all of them, but I don't think she's ever really. I never felt her as like a really strong auteur. The previous one that I liked the most, I think, was uh, Away From Her, which was her breakout film about um, Julia Christie. Um, this, I think, is her, her best film now, like in a wall. It's an amazing ensemble in the best possible way. Um, there's been a lot of like blood and sweat spilt over like how who's going to get nominated from this film and why. And it's it's difficult to say because it's, it's such an ensemble piece. But that in itself speaks exactly to the themes in, of the film. about It's a very much a film about community. As an adaptation, it's a great, it's a great script. The absolutely left build, without spoiling too much, the absolutely left build appearance of a monkey song as some kind of dramatic spine for the film blew me away. Like, so everybody is sort of firing on all cylinders here. Um, just a, a great, fascinating film. You would, again, sort of like St. Omer, it's like, you wouldn't think women sort of de- having circular discussions and debates in a barn would be riveting. And I found this riveting. Yeah, I find it riveting too. I I, I I like this movie. I don't love it. I think it's kind of fine. I think um, I actually sort of disagree. I think part of the problem is Polly's direction. And I can't, I will say that I find this a really ugly looking film. Um, which yeah, see, is I'm, I know that's a that's an opinion a lot of people have shared. And I don't, I didn't I mean... Taste taste is subjective, right? Like sure. I walked yeah, out of this that's going. That's the thing about it. I love the like. I don't know why everybody's complaining about the color grading and saying it was hideous movie. I freaking loved the color. Like I and I'm not a person who who likes typically color grading for color grading, like severe color grading for color grading's yeah. sake. And I thought it worked perfectly here. This is going to sound like a backhanded compliment. I don't mean this. There's a classicalism to it that is uh, sort of adaptation, old Hollywood play adaptation like it reminds me of Qcor or Mankiewicz um that is just so interested in that space in the way these characters and how their conversations develop throughout time and decisions going back and forth and when I heard it was being made into a movie like my first thought was "Ooh, I love that novel that's gonna be cool and then I thought wait how the hell are they gonna make this into a movie it's a it's like literally 300 pages of women sitting in a barn talking women talking yeah it's it's on the can you know but again we might differ on how polly's direction worked there but i think it i find it a really great feat of adaptation which i don't think we get that often it's like just perfectly preserved everything the novel did right and then in my opinion polly adding a lot of a, a lot of depth to it a lot of originality so all right your number five <laughs> I hate myself. I'm, ever since I watched the fucking donkey, I just think eo eo because <laughs> I love him, my little eo. I am going to hopefully see this movie tonight, so I can't I can't comment on it. Yeah, so 
Um, it's Yerzy Skolomowski. He's been around making films for 50 years. He's made The Deep End, The Shout, um, Essential Killing, Moonlighting. I mean, shit. This is another film concerned about mankind and its existential fate. And it's through the eyes of a donkey. <laughs> There's a title at the end, which, never mind. I won't say it because you haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil as much as you can spoil a movie about a doggy just kind of wandering through its life. It's Ahasar Balthasar. Um, and, he's, and he's admitted, the director is like, yeah, open, I mean, open about that. Yeah, yeah. you look at the tra- trailer, the log line, it's Ahasar. Like, you didn't even pick a different animal. But why not keep doing that, right? Why not sort of refract your vision of the world through Bristol? Like, why not? And, well, the, and the donkey is always is is powerful, right? Like in and of yes. itself, the, like yeah. it's a biblical animal. The, yeah. the ass is an idea; isn't just an animal; it's an idea. Yeah. yeah. So it's a sort of innocent figure moving through the world as it is. This is the wildest vision, uh, personal vision of the world that has come this year. Then uh, the, the cinematographer year. has been making some making some awards for us too. Like I've seen, I think. It, there are moments in this that are like 2001 A Space Odyssey. There <laughs> oh. are moments in this that are like, um, oh, oh, sorry, Balthazar. There are moments in this that are like um, fucking, um, what's that German serial killer film? Um, Angst? It, it moves through kind of collective of, of, of what cinema can do, what it can be. There's wings of desire in it. There's, yeah, I, the very last or the the um, penultimate episode in it is a Boonwell joke. And then the ending is, I mean, you can probably guess the ending is kind of devastating. Anyway, yeah, EO is just a really incredible film. We're going to have to talk about it more in depth once you say it. What's your number five? Number film is a number five is a film I've talked about on the pod before. It's Phil Tippett's 30 years in the making uh, stop motion masterpiece, Mad God, which is now streaming on Shudder. Um, we've talked about this before, so I won't go too much into it. Um, Fucking wild ass movie. You know, and I don't I don't tend to be a person who grades movies on a curve based about how much effort they took. Like to me, like Boyhead is a good movie, not because it took 12 years to make. Like that doesn't inherently make a movie good just because it took effort. In the same way, I'm not saying that just because Phil Tippett took 30 years to make this and sort of fits and starts and had to like rope in <laughs> production assistants and assistant directors where he could in spurts, that isn't what makes it great. It's that it's such a vision. You know, we don't, I know that's a cliche word. We talk about visionary directors or this movie is a visionary film, but like this movie is a vision in the sense that it feels like something that would be like that would descend on my mind after a dose of some hallucinogen that I've never heard of, you know, like it's, it's a vision. It's an apocalyptic vision. It's a biblical vision. Um, it's fucking filthy. This movie is a filthy movie. And I don't mean that morally. I mean, I mean, tactily, it's a filthy film. Uh, do you want to swim in the sludge of a thousand decaying bodies? Yeah. So That's I don't, this. I mean, there's some pink, there's some pink Floyd, the wall in there. There's yeah. some, um, there's a lot of, I mean, Tippett being Tippett, there's a lot of animation history sort of mm-hmm. embedded inside this. But it's, it's. I have to put it on this list because it's like nothing else I've seen this year or any other or any other year. It's, it's a completely novel thing. So, you know, your drug trip 
is Mad God. Mine is EO. <laughs> what does What's that wrong say about us? us? Are yeah. we okay? But what if it were like, I don't know, something nice? Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile? I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. You, maybe we have different ideas about nice. <laughs> what is your number four? It's those Fablemans. Oh, Fablemans, yes. Of course. I mean... Have you been talking? I don't remember. Have you talked about this on the pod at least? We did. No. We talked okay. about it briefly um, because you hadn't seen it yet, but you have seen and it. And now I have seen it. Yes. And I don't this, like it as much as you. Yeah. But uh, it is a film. The more I think about it, the more I mm-hmm. like it. It's stuck in my craw from its first moments. There's something this year uh, where all of these artists are sort of evaluating their roles as artists. And there's something sort of Uh, apocalyptic like you said about that we're at the edge what am i doing it's it's steep it's crazy that it's taken this long for steven spielberg to make his old man film but it is his old man film but it it also doesn't like we were talking about family plot with jason it has that same sort of like spark and reinvigoration in in what film can do or what i can do as a filmmaker like i have seen my limitations and i want to understand them and the fablemans is fascinating for that not just because it's his story you know i don't care i don't care what in it is factual what isn't this is such a great film about what do i do how, how does what I do make an impact or not? It's, and so, it, it's so pessimistic about art, not in the sense that art really is not good, is. but in that, like, I was just I was just talking about this on Twitter with somebody about how, like, there is a, like, this movie is not a subtle film. There's a no. midpoint scene where Judge Hirsch gives you the theme and basically huh. gives you the very dire, he says it with a, with a dire, like, certainty of fact right. that artists will have to, sideline betray shortchange their loved ones to make art because art will not be denied it's going to destroy you and your relationships and it's just there's nothing you can do about that if you're past and that's such a such a wild sentiment coming from spielberg at this age it's like he he needed 70 years to 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 formulate that thesis and as a way of understanding his family yeah and his mother in particular. I'm not always a fan of film as therapy. It's like self-autotherapy. This but is it. <laughs> this, it works here, I'll this say that. This is it, yeah. And I've got a couple others. The rest of my list is definitely film as therapy. So um, <laughs> The Fablemans also, not enough credit for how fucking funny it is. You know, it's a Tony Kushner and Spielberg collaboration. But it is weaponizing Seth Rogen in a way I don't think we've ever seen him be weaponized in a film. It's sort of become a, uh, I've seen several people tweet about it, like a, a gif of the shot where they're um, watching his first big film that he's made that he's showing in front of the audience. And Spielberg is has the camera on the three of them, the family friend Seth Rogen plays, um, Mitzi, uh, his mother, played by uh, Michelle Williams, and Paul Dano, his father. And you're already aware that she's got special relationship. His camera it pans over as she looks at the wrong guy, brother, the, <laughs> wrong, the wrong guy, or, or the, the right guy, guy. The right guy. At, yeah. And it's a the film about finding those feelings through film. 
Um, yeah, it's I'm, really not as a, I'm not as enthusiastic about it as you, but it is a film that I've thought about a lot since I saw yeah. it. So th that's to its credit. I think about that scene. I think there's a scene late in the film, the sort of the big scene at the end where he his bully confronts him about what how he portrayed him in sort of the school picnic movie that he made. Yeah, you this, made me look like a there's golden this, god. Or... There's this very overwrought scene in the school hallway. And sort of my feelings about it in that scene were sort of tripping so fast between, is this great or is this dumb? I can't tell. Overwrought. Because it's so, it's so the light is streaming it's so down the hallway. Aware. It's so self-aware. There's I love this, how self -aware but the moment that I love, I do love, is the end, which calls back, I think, to like uh, there's a similar moment in in David Fincher's Zodiac, where the guy says, you know, maybe I'll make a movie about it someday. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, is that everyone lost their fucking shit? Is that brilliantly meta, or is that just too precious? But then he does something even more. The, the, the meta, the meta period that's put on the movie. And yeah. I'm so mad at someone posting screenshots of who plays John Ford. Anyway. It's been all over Twitter though. It's not, it's not a secret. I guess. I don't feel like only film Twitter people, people have already seen it. Anyway. Okay. You're number four. My number four is another film we've talked about recently. After Sun. Um, oh, yeah. Which is an amazing, again, I don't think you were quite as top 10 as I am about this. The debut feature from filmmaker Charlotte Wells. I talked about it length while of this movie. I haven't stopped thinking about it since I've seen it once and I haven't stopped thinking about it since then. Probably my favorite final shot of the year. Maybe Fableman's is yours. My favorite final shot of the year. Maybe this one's probably mine. Incredible film. Again, I, I think I'm repeating myself from an early podcast, but so many movies on my sort of top 30 are movie movies, you know, movies that are, and a lot of movies this year are about move, big maximalist filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a film that's a film, it's cinematic, but it isn't maximalism. It's just using the medium in ingenious ways to, to untangle the past. And I, I can't, just thinking about it makes me misty-eyed. So I, that, that has to count for something. You know, emotional responses aren't intellectual responses, but that has to absolutely count for something. I think they are intellectual responses. <laughs> I'm about to talk about some emotional responses. Okay, we're getting, in, we're, getting into the, we're getting into the big ones here. Number three for you. Well, number three is something, uh, it was your number nine? Yeah. It's The Eternal Daughter. Oof. This is Joanna Hogg's. What a picture. But yeah. Okay, what did you text me? Say I said it. that this is the Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone of the souvenirs. <laughs> and I mean that in the best possible way. So it's a it's a reconfiguration of what the souvenir was. And the souvenir and, was and we both very love, expressly. Both, we yes. both love the souvenir part one and two, right? I love two. I you need to revisit one now with the love of two. And now with... Joanna Hogg kind of has my number three spot. Like next year, you got a film? Probably going to be number three. <laughs> anyway. Um, she gets it by default. But this is her genre reworking of her life as an artist. But much more, this one much more, this particular chapter about her mother. Yeah. And so you could say that it's two characters from souvenir films, maybe. Um. One who was originally played by Nilda Swinton. And then her daughter, like the, the layers of all that is fucking nuts. Like the serial killer with the pushpins and string, all that shit. But as a film about using art as therapy, this is it. It's a gothic ghost story as like an excavation of your parents and how you will never really understand your parents. And 
I don't know. Again, I don't want to say too much about this film for those who haven't seen it yet, but there's so much self-criticism and like ambivalence about filmmaking, about real life subjects in it. It's Joanna Hogg like wrestling on film with, do I even have the fucking right to make this movie? I don't know. And how much of life is mundane and how much of it you're living through that. And just the conversations in these films or in this film. Although I will say, shout out to the petulant desk clerk who consistently breaks the like the very gothic psychological spell with her just like flippant i clearly don't want to be here i love it i love her so much interesting that these is this is side by side with after sun too which i think you can argue that both movies are sort of post grief uh, it's maybe it's maybe yeah it's maybe elided a bit more exactly what happened to charlotte's uh father analog in the film mm-hmm. but but like it's very much a movie about people adults wrestling with what was going on in my parents head what were they really mm-hmm. about can I ever really understand them and am I yeah. allowed to talk about that now I this is one of my favorite movies um and that I have you know two films that I think are sort of totemic um wait where was Petite Maman last year for you <laughs> let's let's ask that question I think was it was that number hot? three hey <laughs> Me, as a film lover and a film critic, it felt very personal to me. I don't, I, someone who shrugs at subjectivity can go elsewhere and no. have their I think we're, I mean, views. I think we've always, we've always been on the same page. That's been our thing. Yeah. 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 And I think we'll get to it when we get to some of mine too, about the, the, the tension between emotional, personal reaction and yeah. intellectual reaction, if any. You know, I, I lost my mother last year mm-hmm. and this to me is the way she haunts me <laughs> and but the way i still love her and the way she's mutated into something else but she's also still herself i've not seen a film understand it and the means by which it understands it is so special i did say on letterbox that you know in our current age of illiter- media illiteracy and cultural illiteracy um inability to like read what a film's intent is somebody out there is going to say that Eternal Daughter sucks because they call, totally called the twist early on. And that person can burn in hell. <laughs> right. Well, then watch it again and then have the experience that the rest of us are having because right. we also figured it out very early and and then was able to wade through the waters of it. Yeah. What's your number three? Uh, my number three is a film uh, that I think we're going to disagree a little bit about. Oh, shit. Todd Field's Tar, which oh, I know yeah. you, are, you are the contrarian here. Like it is really racking up a lot of Laurels and you're the contrarian. So let's not be negative. Let's be positive. Okay. No, not meaning that like let I I don't want to argue. I'm, I'm not gonna dig on I tar. Argue. I don't argue. I don't, I don't I don't have a lot of negative things to say about tar. I have a lot of ambivalence for tar. That's fair. That's so fair. I again the Richard Brody wrote a wrote a very uh, an excellent but very negative review of it, um, which I thought it was a great read. I disagreed with almost everything he said, but it was still a very cogent, you know, insightful read. This is an amazing film. I think everybody's been talking about it, at least in the film Twitter sphere. Um, the, again, the more the, the film, the more I think about, the more it's sort of sticking on my ribs. I absolutely need to revisit it. And it is one of those films I'm loath to like recommend to people who are not like cinephiles. Like rando relative came up to me and said, hey, what movie should I watch? <laughs> I don't think I would recommend Tar, the two and, <laughs> two and a half hour character study that tinges into ghost story about the classical music world. 
but Kate giving an absolute banger performance and a, a just crazy sound design, crazy um, note, like the horror movie notes. Uh, Dan Coy wrote a great piece of unpacking, like, is this a ghost story? Is this a haunting movie that we were sort of not seeing in the same way that maybe Lydia Tarr isn't seeing what's coming up behind her and about to tap her on the shoulder, metaphorically? I wrote a pretty uh, long review of this, so I won't belabor it, but um, just a great movie about art and power and how those sort of entwine with each other and corrupt each other is not, not a movie about cancel culture and Me Too, but it is so much more than that. It's so much more complicated. And we need more movies where we have protagonists, not heroes, not villains, but we have protagonists who are complicated and the film itself has a complicated relationship to that person. It isn't telling us how to feel. It's just trying to put us inside that person's head and maybe experience with their experience and draw our own conclusions about what that means. I love that. And Todd Fields, I think it's his best. I'm maybe cooler on in the bedroom and little children than a lot of people. So I think this is absolutely his best film. Love those movies. I'm going to revisit Tar once the memes go away. (laughs) What is your number two? You know, we just keep kind of very, um, very in a cute way, relating all the beauty and the bloodshed. Um, I have two, I feel, totemic films that I might want Like, this is, to me, one of the great documentaries, one of the great nonfiction films, one of the great well, Laura films Poitras, about, one of the great greatest to do it, right? And one of the great films about art and art's role in the world and the artist's role. And does the artist owe anything to their audience? What do they owe to themselves? What do they owe to um, their subjects, if anything? I have not seen this film yet, and but you have been raving about it nonstop. So it's um, it's still it's still in my increasingly slender watch pile over here. <laughs> I you uh, privileged film critic as I, I would urge you to watch it as soon as possible. Um, seeing it on a big screen, I really can't wait because um, Nan Golden, who is the subject of the film. Uh, was an underground artist in late 70s, 80s uh, in New York City. She was running around with David Wojnarowicz, Cookie Mueller, John Water, like the whole queer scene. art scene was revolving and she was uh, one of, in its orbit at least. It's a film that understands her art and sort of takes on her art as one of the ways it works um, in the slideshows that she would do of her photography. In particular, it highlights uh, the ballad of sexual dependency, but isn't just about that, is also about her fight against the Sackler family and their involvement in the arts. Um, The Sackler family being the family behind Purdue Pharma, uh, Mm. the manufacturer of OxyContin. It's very complicated in that way. And I think it is a film that a lot of people can walk away from thinking of it as a social justice film. And it is about the futility of the fight too. And there is a scene where they've ostensibly won that is going to rip your heart out and stomp on it because it's about how do you win now? Now, have it sight unseen, I haven't seen it, but one criticism mm-hmm. I have heard from the very rare person who hasn't liked it was that the bifurcation, it stops being good when it's no longer about the art scene, that it becomes a more straightforward, less interesting picture. You don't agree with that? They are running on parallel tracks throughout. And the juxtaposition 
of those two things is what makes it interesting. Because Nan Golden's story about the art scene is also the story of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. It's also the story of her family. And there isn't really a bifurcation. There's a try, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, In a figure that haunts her, that gives the film its title. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is one of the great movies. Yeah, it's coming to the Webster University film series. So big screen opportunity. Uh, starting January 27th and then running um, with, yeah, a few, a few showings through February, beginning of February. So that's going to be so cool to see it with people. And I have a few people that I have promised that I'm taking them to see it because it's been not really present. All right, Andrew, your number two is definitely about art or something, right? Like it it's, has to relate. What is it? It's... I may maybe misspoke earlier when I said the most romantic movie was a prison drama about two German dudes, uh-huh. because the most romantic movie is probably really about a police, the Korean police detective and his maybe suspect, uh, Park Chan Wook's decision to leave. I can't. We talked about this movie before. I can't. I don't really think at this point I can sell you on it if you're not into uh, Park Chan Wook and Korean cinema. But it's like this movie is a movie movie. It's the editing, the performances. Every shot that could like the labyrinthine yet straightforward construction of it. And at the core of it, the idea that love can't really be denied, that love is mysterious and uncontrollable and that it makes us do terrible things. And we it's it's not we can't bullwhip love into obeying us like a tamed lion at the circus. Again, speaking of great final scenes, final shots, like the mystery, the final mystery that the um the woman character sets up for him to investigate. It's just like, took my breath. I'm watching it. I'm going, is this is this happening? What I think is going to be happening? Oh my God. We were talking earlier about Emily the Criminal and just the thriller crime genre in general. And, you know, one of the tenets of it, it being identity. But, you know, this film has a couple of other things happening as it relates to identity. And that's vision. Seeing, the act of seeing. seeing. Speaking of De Palma. Yeah, and love. And how those three things intertwine. Yeah, I don't want to give specifics because at this point, I need to see it again. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. (laughs) Because it's sort of, it is simple, but it is also very complex and sticky. Like like all of Mark's films. This is my favorite of his films. Really? And I have some big blind spots with him, but this is my favorite of his. It feels like an opus. It feels like the same uh-huh. way that, that Bong Joon-ho worked towards Parasite. Like it feels like right. he's been working towards this movie for a while. Okay. Number one. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what you're going to say here. I don't know what do you mean? Say. I have said it for six months now. Jordan Peele's note is my number oh, one. Oh, of course. Wow. Oh, forget about Nope. I had a friend Everything... tell me yesterday that they hated Nope, and I didn't even know what to say to her. Fuck just, off. I just I hate had to walk. No, she, she's fine. But I had I'm to sure like, turn, she's fine. I had to turn 180 degrees. <laughs> Everything I've said about every other film in my list is also said in Nope. Like, it is contains the rest of the top 10. It, it somehow manages to do all of those things. Is it safe to say it's Peel's best film to date for you? 
Absolutely. This this film is like approaching, you know, the very top of things for me. I I adore every move this movie makes. But uh, for me, you know, just looking at my list, it's about filmmaking. It's about spectacle. It's about land. Um, it is about the black experience, the black nature, experience human human relationship to animals. It's about nature. It is about yes, colonialism in some form or fashion. It's about film history. It's about how we live now. It's also fucking fun. <laughs> not a not a laborious film to sit through by any means. You know, we did our. St. Louis Film Critics Association. I don't know how much we're supposed to talk about this. We do a category where it's scene of the year. I had five scenes from no. I'm like, they're just gonna, they're just gonna think well, I'm an asshole. I will say again, this isn't a top 10 film for me, but I will say that Nope was on my best scene of the year. So which, can you guess? Which, can you guess on. what was on there? Gordy's home. Yes, it was was the Gordy's aftermath, home. the aftermath of Gordy's slaughter. Yeah, Gordy's home. Yeah, the um, sound design in that scene with that popping balloon, the pop on the hot and lights, nothing else, and oh, just God. a kind of buzz of a light, and you being in the protagonist, who's actually the antagonist of the film, being in his shoes, looking vision obscured. I'm getting chills. Vision obscured, staring at the mystery and the spectacle, and it approaching you and giving you a fist bump. Yeah. And cat, I mean, every the casting is great. I appeal one appeal strength is casting, and like the everybody's everybody's doing great in this film. I can't um, think of anyone who's done a bad or unimpressionable job in any Jordan Peele film. But Daniel Kaluuya doing yeah. like stuff he's never done before and just being yeah. amazing at it. Like I say, Stephen Young is. Mm-hmm. It again, this is a second watch film where you almost need to watch Jupe specifically. Yep. In this, in the second watch. And the things that yeah. he's doing, amazing stuff. And the relation between, um, you know, victim, victimhood, and, and the perpetuation of that. I, have you yeah. have you the, seen the series that he's that he's like uh, curating right now at Lincoln Center? Oh yes, yes, yes. yes. He, he had a great. He has a great curriculum, like ten films that influence Nope or that are an important part of Nope, and it's a great. It's a great list. Yeah, and I love how aware Nope is of film and film history and playing with it. You know, um, Babylon is a film that has had a lot of people talking about film and film history, and the I won't talk about the end of Babylon, but uh, Babylon does this really big swing. And Jordan Peele does it in a cut. He does the exact same swing. Nope is my favorite film of the year. Yours. I think you know. Mine, mine, the name of Nope, Nope, is a negative. Yeah. Yours is everything. Not a negation. All of it. Everything, everywhere. And it really was, I mentioned this earlier, like for me, it was between this and decision to leave. I sort of mm-hmm. had them on, I went back and forth like for weeks about it's going to be one of these. I, but as I'm watching them, I knew like the word number one film of the year was flashing in my mind. Like this is mm-hmm. it. I know I'm watching the film that's like, that is, that is elevating me, that is making my mind buzz. Um, that's so it was really the- a choice between, ironically, considering decision to leave is about love. <laughs> it's a choice between head for decision to leave or heart everything everywhere and 
I think I had to go with heart just because, again, I knew when I was watching it, I'm like, I'm gripping the seat, not because I'm tense, but because I realize I'm watching something special to me that oh. I know I'm going to be watching this movie yeah. over and over again. Yeah. But I do want to say, so everybody's been talking about this film. It's had its backlash. It's had its counter backlash already. Yeah. Um, it's it's making a lot of awards buzz. So I don't want to go too much into it. But I do want to talk about one thing specifically. Um, there's so much that's great about this film. I've loved the Daniels. I love, I've, I've been a Swiss Army man partisan for a couple of years now. And I love their direction. I love everything about this film, about how it's like, I could talk about the production design in the very first shot of Michelle Yeoh's apartment and everything that is going on in every detail. So it is a movie made to be picked apart in every possible way. But what I want to talk about as we end here is I felt connected to this film in a way, and again, that I'm not a Chinese American, I'm not an immigrant, my parents weren't struggling people owning a laundromat. There are so many parts about this movie that should not connect with me, but yet this movie did connect with me very deeply, emotionally and psychologically, because it's the first film I can think of in a long time that really talked about the sort of post-internet, post-social media despair and how that dovetails with a more with a much older ancient problem of nihilism and depression and mm. how particularly how that interacts with two different ideas. I mean, again, I suppose we're spoiling everything everywhere up here, but really it's about the conflict between two different kinds of negativity, the, the negativity mm. of regret of being a middle-aged person who's looking back and wishing things had been different and lamenting all the things that you didn't do and all the, the paths that you didn't take and an adolescent feeling of just absolute nihilism, a feeling that the, the, when self-loathing becomes so intense that it becomes a loathing that involves the entire cosmos and all universes. Hmm. And I haven't seen, it's it's weird to talk about this movie in the same breath that I would talk about Melancholia or Inter Woody Allen's Interiors or Cries and Whispers or Bellatar, a much more downer film when this movie is sort of a, a lot of people are talking about it as a radically optimistic film. But for me, it hits a lot of that same sort of deep hypothalamus centers and talking mm -hmm. about how we as human beings deal with the fact of our existence. And the Daniels are coming at it from a very specific age of like internet overstimulation, but it is, it really is no different than things that, that filmmakers and all artists have been talking about for eons, right? It's, it's about the idea of dealing with nothing mattering and how, how we confront that. Do you think that it isn't mentioned in the same breath and that it is has been so successful and found a really large audience is because it's ultimately hopeful about those things? Yes, I do think that's probably part of it, but it's but it's hopeful in a very sort of conditional way. Right. I, I don't think it's necessarily, I think some people are accusing of being like glib, particularly in its last few scenes. And I don't mm, feel like- that's That's unfair. And I say this as somebody who loves Paddington too. It's not, I'm not getting the simplistic moralism of just be nice to people, even though it has some of that exact same messaging embedded inside it in terms of there, there are characters who say lines that are oh, very Paddington lines, but I don't think it ends on that same. It's a movie like the, the movie itself almost deconstructs it in real time where like Michelle Yeoh's character is trying to sum up and deliver a big monologue and her daughter basically cuts her off and says, this is not working. Like whatever you're trying to do here, the sum up is not happening. And it has Rakakuni in it. It has Rakakuni. I mean, how can you go wrong with Rakakuni? Yeah. So I, I, 
I feel like this is the movie movie for me. Like, uh, I, I feel like I'm going to be revisiting. I've already, you know, I already own it on 4K. I'm going to be revisiting it over and over again. And I feel like the the added the internet attitude about this movie is weird. And I so sort of part of me doesn't want to be identified as an everything everywhere partisan because there's a weird it's a weird contingency where they're like ultra fans yeah quasi marv mcu fan weirdness and to it's it. like did you all even understand that movie that you proposed <laughs> the fact that the long? daniels the daniels had to post and say don't be crazy about our movie guys like yeah maybe but re-watch it one more time and think about it i i guess that's a testament to how good it is is that even yes. with my reservations about that it's like I'm still comfortable being a film person who puts everything everywhere as their number one film of the year, even with all that. So that to me just says how how great it is. I'm going to rewatch this fucking movie. Like I am <laughs> so I am so jazzed about movies right now. I every time we do the end of the year stuff, I'm like, yeah, I remember. That's why I love this shit. Is you have everything that on a experience. Bagel. You have that experience that we were talking about with Jason. It's like, while you're in it, or right even after, you're like, that, I can't wait to be in that again, because that just means so much to me. And I can't wait to tell other people about it, and possibly scaring them off with how enthusiastic I'm being about it. Right. Have someone who feels that very thing, you know. All so right. it's a, I, I disagree that this wasn't a good year, because I found my, my honorable mention list is like really deep. All right, there. fine. All right. Let's make it a good year. Let's put a cap on it and call it a good year. What what do you got on the list? Um, so at all these are the films I sort of considered when I was building a top 10 list. Uh-huh. Uh, after Yang, which we've talked about, Banshees of yeah. Inisherin, uh, Benediction, which I think we met, you mentioned earlier. A film I'm very thumbs up. You have some formal problems. Yeah. Digital, the digital in it is so awful to me. Bones and All, a film we talked about a few weeks ago. Bones and All was in my top 10, got shuffled around. Crimes of the Future. A movie I did not expect to like as much as I did. Just Cronenberg never missed. Really? Oh, yeah. I expected you to love it. <laughs> I maybe I heard I was reading some sort of negative pushback on it after its premiere, and it mm. got me more nervous about it. But I, it's funny. It's a funny very Cronenberg funny. movie. It um, is. Um, his sense of humor is is very unique. It is a comedy. It is a comedy, and there are no like laugh out loud. Uh, the Innocence, which is a film I've mentioned before, a, a Scandinavian horror film I love. The Menu, which we've talked about earlier on the pod. Uh, Prey, the Predator sequel. I, I cannot mention it. it. Oh, phenomenal. Totally uh, seen it. Resurrection with Rebecca Hall, also in Shudder now. Resurrection, uh, Rebecca Hall, something how becoming our becoming our like art horror screen queen right now. In addition <laughs> yeah, to directing movies, Allison Williams is the Hollywood version now yeah. after Megan and Rebecca Hall's performance in that is top tier. She was my number one. Saint Omer, which you mentioned earlier. Yep, um, I love Turning Red, which I don't think a lot of people are talking about at this point in the year. Which, if if not for Mad God, I think would be my favorite animated film of the year. Um, Watcher, Chloe Nakune, of the T West, like Ty West partisans, I'm in the X camp, so I got to mention X slightly mm-hmm. over Pearl. Um, and a film that we might be talking about soon on the pod called um, You Won't Be Alone, which is a Macedonian folk horror movie that nobody saw, which somehow came out of left field and that wowed me. So, um, and I could probably name another 30 films after that. So, what are your some honorable mentions you want to rattle off? Um, you mentioned quite a few of them. I'm going to say some things you didn't mention. Elvis? Oh, well, we're going to differ there, but okay. Okay. 
that's it is is, speaking of maximalist filmmaking uh maximalist like cashlin-esque circian i think biopic that is not that at all that i found fascinating and about it's uh it's very subversive telling um yeah yeah interesting movie um a nice and love that was a uh qfest pick um, that I think is just kind of a light, fresh, sort of like Francis Ha plus Carol in the French countryside. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing is a film I, I thought a lot of people would bring up at the end of the year, but I guess it's sort of gone to the wayside and it's a film that I really love. Um, Kimmy, uh, that's a forgotten one. That is one I seriously considered. Speaking of like a... master sinking effortless yeah. three-pointers, like, like just doing awesome no genre exercise. Yeah. The same with like High Flying Bird a few years ago. Um, the Woman King, Armageddon Time, uh, Claire Denise, Both Sides of the Blade, her other film, and we'll talk about Stars, as, stars at Noon on the next podcast. Um, well, one of those two. Catherine called Birdie, Lena Dunham's film, this is a film that should have made millions of dollars. I have I have heard a lot of folks on film Twitter at least talking about that movie is like not getting enough love. So this is a newer like a ladybird level stuff. This should be um, like teenage girls' favorite movie, and I don't think anyone's heard of it. I, I I'm gonna keep going. Three minutes of lengthening. Um, Hold me tight and pleasure. Two films that were shown at Webster. Um, um, uh, Hong Sang Soo massive year i still need to catch up with novelist film but he had introduction and in front of your face um uh yeah let me let me let me pose a question to you at the end yeah. here so pick something out of your honorable mentions that is a or look through your list or whatever uh-huh. a movie that you're pretty sure almost no one has ever heard of from a filmmaker that nobody's ever heard of like a just complete diamond in the rough in the best possible way um, that would be the tale of king crab you were you reviewed this like from Sundance last year, right? Um, from the Nashville Film Festival. Nashville Film Festival. And then I believe we played it at Slip. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of people talk about it. It is a um kind of Boonwellian triptych of fables. And it is the most gorgeous looking film. Um yeah. I would point people to that. That's on uh, Canopy. You can watch it. And uh, then I wrote about it for the Nashville Film Festival. You can see it on the lens at cinemastlouis.org. What, what about you? What's one that uh, would surprise some folks? So I reviewed a film earlier this year that I believe played at Webster. Nobody has seen it. Nobody's talking about it. And I haven't seen it in a single one end of the year list, but it blew me away. It's a film called Servants. Um, by a Czechoslovakian filmmaker named Ivan Ostrovsky. Um, I probably horribly mispronounced that. A fascinating, fascinating film. It's an auteur's film. Like, if it's aesthetically, it's immediately arresting. This is a film about um, two semina- Catholic seminarians in Czechoslovakia in 1980. So communism is still in effect. We're behind the Iron Curtain. And about them coming to seminary, they're like village friends who went into the seminary to uh, avoid like compulsive military service in Soviet Czechoslovakia. And they're dealing with a state that is going and getting increasingly militant about cracking down on dissent as it comes from inside the Catholic church, the Catholic church being sort of one of the last like tiny bastions that's trying to push back against the, uh, the regime. And it's this fascinating slow burn. Again, it's hard not to think of other European filmmakers 
Eastern European filmmakers in terms of the style, but it, it isn't what I would call a character piece. It's more like a mood piece. And just, again, nobody's talking about it. I watched it and I was blown away. Like, how has nobody mentioned this filmmaker before or, the, or this film? Um, seek it out if you can. It's available. At this point, it's available pretty much to rent everywhere. I, you know, I'm not a person who is sympathetic to the Catholic Church. Let me be clear about that. So if a movie can make me feel for Catholic police struggling against a totalitarian atheist regime, like there's something there. It's it's a fascinating film about how authoritarianism works and how dissent is crushed and how also how dissent survives in the cracks under authoritarian regimes. Just a great film. I guess that was a good year movie. Whatever. Like, you know, it took it took it took a while. It took a while for me. There's a critical mass that has yeah, to be reached. And then you start going, oh yeah, this year right. didn't suck. All <laughs> right. This year didn't suck. Well. You know, you'd think with that we would be done with that year, but we are not because we have two more episodes to go in this miniseries. We're going to be talking about my pick, Stars at Noon. That's Claire Denis' film. It's available on Hulu. Andrew, sounds like you decided on... I think we're going with You Won't Be Alone by Goran Stolevsky. Yeah. All right. Andrew, A. Wyatt, 76 on Letterboxd. Arachnophiliac on Twitter. Yep. You see how I got the shit memorized now? Yeah. You don't have yeah, to ask I'm Crispy Retinas back on Twitter for a second. Maybe by the time this is up, I won't be. And Crispy Retinas on uh, Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter. And then you can find all of our words at The Lens on Cinema St. Louis. I forgot it. And until then, don't forget The Lens on Cinema St. Louis. Talk.